some worship. What an awesome season it is, isn't it, church? Some of you sound like you're still waking up. Need some more of that coffee, huh? All right. Amen. I got a couple amens out of that one, huh? All right. Well, hey, we are going through a series we're calling 100% All Natural Miraculous Christmas. And as we do, um, I just got a, a brief story to share with you. How many of you are familiar with Set Free Ministry? So, wow. Okay. Whoa, that's awesome. Yeah, Set Free. I think some of you maybe had them do your lawns or some of you your walks and that kind of thing. I think Set Free is an incredible ministry, and I, I've known Richard for a good amount of time, and he does an incredible job. Um, and uh, if you don't know what Set Free Ministry is, it's a ministry that, that helps. It's an intensive discipleship program for those coming out of addiction in recovery or those coming out of prison into the, the world. And so um, it's incredible ministry that, that is focused on discipling these men and women into Christ and, and how to live in light of Christ. Well, a few years ago, when I was still in college, which is more years than I'd like to admit now, um, uh, there was a set-free ministry that we were that was trying to start in Casper. And I'll never forget the, the lessons and the things that I saw when I saw the set-free ministry try to come into is actually the neighborhood that I lived in in Casper. At one point, there was picketing in the streets, and there was people that were upset, and there was a forum where people had signs that they were so upset that this ministry was going to come into the neighborhood, into our neighborhood. As I, I One morning, I opened my door, and there was all of these pamphlets warning me about what those kind of people are like. And it was this campaign to defeat the set-free ministry coming in. It was a fear-mongering, fear-based, a lot of it based in deception, a lot of it based in pushback and unreasonable fear. In fact, as I lived in that neighborhood, I looked around and I noticed something. <laughs> I lived around people who struggled with addiction in that neighborhood. I lived with people who were struggling in life and, and needed some type of encouragement. We saw violence many times in front of my, in front of my house as I was in college, uh, living in that very same neighborhood. I had people passed out in my front lawn. I had people beat up in my front yard. And I thought it was incredible, incredibly interesting that people could rally together and say, we don't want this kind of restorative ministry in our neighborhood when it's the very ministry that they need, that they need. I was blown away by the opposition that I saw. But see, here's the thing about the coming kingdom of Christ. There's usually one of two reactions when, when kingdom building ministries come into town or when the Savior himself enters the world. There's those that would be excited and travel great distances to see him. And there's those who would oppose the coming king. We're going to read about a guy named Herod. Everybody say Herod. And Herod was known as Herod the Great, and there were some great things about Herod, but Herod is best known in history as the guy who opposed the coming king, the guy who set out to make sure that Jesus couldn't come into this world. So if you got a Bible, turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew 2, 1 through 19. 1 through 19. Today, we're talking about opposition opposition to the coming King Jesus, the coming King Jesus. So Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. And this is a, a good chunk of Scripture, so bear with me, but many of us have heard this story, but I want you to be listening 
listening for the opposition that Herod is going to supply here. He is opposing the coming king, this baby Messiah who was said to be king. Starting in verse 1, chapter 2 of Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, everybody say, bum, bum, bum. Okay, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Everybody say, king. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was born, was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Everybody say, Amen. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Everybody say, That's a lie. After listening to, this, to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pause there. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray, God, this year, this season, as we celebrate the incarnation of you, Lord, entering this earth, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open. One, God, that we wouldn't respond in opposition to you, but Lord, that we would respond with rejoicing for you. God, we just pray that our hearts would be open this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, so this guy named Herod, he's got some exploits. And I found this pretty amazing. This is cool, guys. I found this. There is an actual historically accurate picture that I found of Herod. Can I show you a picture of him? Here it is. I'm kidding. That's not historically accurate. That's a joke. Um, but really, it's like Herod is the Scrooge of this story, isn't it? And let's talk about some of the exploits of this guy, Herod. So Herod was an intriguing, intriguing guy. In fact, let me bring up my notes here. He is very well known historically. We can prove that he existed. He can, we can prove that we, he existed. And one of the things that we know about Herod was how incredibly insecure Herod was. But let's talk about some of the exploits. I got the chance to go and walk in Herod's house, which is still, well, kind of standing today. One of his many palaces. Here's a, here's a little clip. This is the Herodium. Where Herod was buried. And Becky didn't know I was going to use that clip. Um, but the Herodium was one of his palaces that he spent most of his time in. It is still the ruins of his palace are there today. He was an incredible builder. 
In fact, you're going to see traces of his fingerprints throughout much of the New Testament, Jesus' story. Um, I got a, another really cool chance. You guys know I had trouble with uh, drone in Israel. And one of the things that I did is I, I did what you're not supposed to do, but here's a cool clip because I did it. Uh, is this is Masada, the fortress of Masada. Herod also built this fortress. And I want to give you an aerial view uh, of, of this. If you guys see there, that's the Dead Sea in the background. And so he built this huge fortress just on the tip, on the top of this mountain. He was an incredible builder. He loved this idea of his kingdom. He had these incredible palaces that had huge pools that collected great amount of water up on top of those hills. And uh, he lived in quite a lot of luxury. And you see that's the Dead Sea there in the background. Um, I, I erased this part, but shortly after this, uh, I flew the drone right down to my pocket because I had Israeli military coming and running and saying, take down that drone. And I was terrified. I thought I'd really done something wrong. Um, but as you see, much of the Masada is still there today. This is a picture of Becky standing down by where the pools uh, are of Herod. Another thing that Herod built was an aqueduct. He, he built an aqueduct that came all the way down Caesarea by the sea is what they call it. This is incredible. It's miles long. And you see, he was an incredible builder and it's still there to this day, this aqueduct that it was on the, the shore of the sea. So he brought in fresh water to his beach property to this incredible thing. Look, this is still standing. Herod himself, the guy we're reading about, built this, built this. And then here again is the Herodium. This is inside what I'd like to think is, is Herod's living room. Everybody go, right? Herod then was buried at the side of the Herodium. And this was a, a recent archaeological discovery. If you guys see there, that's where he was he is buried, his tomb was. So he was a real guy and an incredible builder. But just because somebody is a great man, does that make them a good man or a godly man? No, see... He even had a hand in, at this time, rebuilding the Temple Mount. And a lot of what we see in the Temple Mount today in the story of Jesus' time, that was constructed by Herod. So this guy's his fingerprints are all over. He thought that he was pretty great. He was an incredible builder. He was incredibly insecure. And we have the writings of Josephus. This is kind of a cool, if some of you are into a lot of research, you could look at the writings of Josephus. He let us know exactly who Herod was and what Herod was like. Um, he was a, a Jewish historian that recorded what uh, Herod had done and a lot of history there. But he was incredibly insecure. How do we know this? Well, he had two of his own sons killed because of rumors. This was a very insecure man, wasn't it? He heard rumors, so he ended up killing his two sons and his wife. Um, he instructed soldiers on the day of his death. I thought this is interesting. If you want to see how insecure this guy was, he instructed soldiers to kill his favorite wife if he died abroad because he didn't want anybody else to have her. This is not a good dude, huh? Great politician. He was an incredible politician for his day. He was an incredible politician for his day. Many would have sang his praises in the day. Look how great our great King Herod is. But he was also a murderer. He had multiple, uh, multiple wives and a laundry list of domestic issues. And he ruled for a grand total of 33 years in the Judea countryside. 
He was kind of like a puppet. He was a puppet ruler of Rome. They let him rule, but he had lots of uh, friendships in Rome that allowed him to rule the area. And uh, that's what brought him a lot of his success. Um, So uh, here's a little model of his house. Uh, So I want to look at, I know a lot of times when we focus on this story, we focus on the wise men. But I'd like us to take a second and to look at Herod. And Shane, why on earth would we take such a close look at Herod? The reason I want to look at Herod is because I've got a theory. I think there's a little bit of Herod in all of us. Everybody go, I'm shocked, right? There's a little bit of Herod in all of us. And there's a Herod, there's kind of that, that spirit of Herod in the world today. So I want to talk about two types of opposition that the gospel, the coming Jesus, the coming king faces. He faced back when Jesus was born and faces today as well. We have internal opposition where we ourselves want to oppose the gospel reigning in our life. Anybody struggle with that? Every Christian here should raise their hands if they're honest, right? And then there's the external, like what I saw with the set free ministry. When there's kingdom building going on, is there going to be opposition? Every time. Every time in history when God has moved powerfully in a ministry or done something incredible, maybe it's even in your own life, have you noticed that there's pushback? Have you faced pushback? That's opposition. And so let's look at Herod. Starting verse 3 there, we see his reaction, not just his reaction, this is interesting, but also everybody in the area in Jerusalem. What happened when Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. This is the wise men talking to Herod and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, what was his response? He was troubled, but not just him. All of Jerusalem with him was troubled. Now think about this. Why were they so troubled as a response? This idea of this Messiah, this king would be born. Why were they troubled? What do you think? Let's hear it. Just shout it out. They didn't think a baby should be the king. They're worried about Rome. What else? Impending change. They were threatened. Their kingdom was being threatened by this prophecy, by this Messiah. They were worried that if he came, that meant their kingship was over. I know Christians, we're never threatened by giving our life over to Christ, are we? It doesn't mean that we have to give any of our kingship up over our life. Wrong, right? When you say, in Romans 10, 9, when you become a Christian, you say that, that Jesus is now Lord of your life. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The very idea of salvation is coming and saying, I'm letting go of my kingdom and I'm giving it to Jesus. I'm letting go of my life, which is our kingdom, everything I've built, and I'm giving it to Jesus. I'm no longer in charge, but Jesus is now in charge. That's called lordship. But see, here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel comes with this idea of kingship in our own lives. And we have uh, one of two responses. We could respond like Herod and we could feel threatened. Oh no, my life is mine. I want to make my own decisions. And many Christians, even though we come to faith, we like to take our life back from Jesus, don't we? We like to take our life back from Jesus. See, Herod was deeply, deeply threatened by the kingship of Jesus, this coming Messiah who would be born. And so when he heard that word king, that was a buzzword for him. So there's a king coming. He's like, nope, I'm going to make sure that he has no say in my kingdom. No say in my kingdom. See, rejoicing for the kingship 
of Christ sometimes is hard for us, isn't it? Because it means that we have to let go of things that we like, things that make us feel good. Sometimes we, we have a hard time rejoicing at letting go of our life and giving it to Christ. But man, it is so good, isn't it? Is so good. Herod is an example of what I would call our internal struggle to oppose Christ and his coming. And I want to show you this exists externally. We know that the world first hated Jesus, so it's going to it's going to hate us as well because we are his. So there's a sense of internal opposition to the gospel, the coming Messiah in our life, but also there's this external opposition to the coming Messiah in our life. Look at John 15. 18 through 19. If the world hates you, this is Jesus, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That part right there should make some of us concerned. The world would love you as its own. How many of you feel really comforted when the world loves you? You like being liked by the world. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A part of what you inherit when you become a son or daughter of God is you're also inheriting opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They all three oppose God's work in our lives. Just like Herod, they respond saying, this is our kingdom. I want to talk about the internal battle then that we all fight um, in opposition to our Lord and our Savior. Uh, this is Galatians 5, 16 through 17. Um, it says this, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Everybody say, bum, bum, bum. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are, what's that word? Opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So here, Paul's even talking to Christians, and he's saying, we have this internal fight in us and we're facing an external fight against the gospel in our lives. It's kind of like this. Many movies have portrayed like the good part of you and the bad part of you. Ever seen that? Where they have like dialogue, you have like the angel on one shoulder and the, the devil on the other. It's not accurate. That's not really how it is. But I've always pictured this passage when I think about the fact that when I come into this Christmas season and I'm beginning to rejoice, it's so easy to let the world define how I celebrate my coming Savior, isn't it? And they're telling me how I should rejoice by being very good consumer, by buying lots of stuff, by being in front of those store doors really early right after Thanksgiving, right? The, the world is really good at telling me, but there's a part of me that really likes that. Do you guys have that part? That's called your flesh. The Bible calls him the old man, where we really love the performance. We really love the things. But see, Jesus comes on the scene, and he threatens all of those things. He threatens the external consumerism, and he threatens the internal consumerism that we tend to like in this season. See, the gospel threatens the world's values. How do I know this? Well, one of our stated values as a country is the pursuit of happiness. What is God's highest value for you? The pursuit of holiness. Happiness is a part of holiness, right? We are not truly happy until we're in Christ. But if you try to seek happiness apart from God, what happens? It's a train wreck. 
It's a train wreck. So the gospel comes and begins to oppose our own nature, and it begins to oppose the external nature of the culture that we live in. And you can imagine there's so many things, brothers and sisters, in our culture today that war against the values of Christ. So what does it lead to? What does it lead to for Herod? When we look at Herod as an example of opposition, internal and external opposition to the gospel of Jesus and to his coming into this world and into our life, what do we see? Herod in verse uh, Matthew 2 verse 8 said, And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, this is so interesting to me, bring me word. And then what does he say? That I may come and worship him that I may come and worship him. Brothers and sisters, I, I tell my kids this all the time. If Evie was here, she'd tell you, do you have your armor on? Do you have your guard up? Do you have your discernment on? Um, and it's because the world wants us to believe this. And that's how they've infiltrated Christian culture for so many years. Herod has come, and he, he begins to lie to the wise men. Oh yeah, I really believe in what you believe, and they deceive us. And we welcome them in, but then we see that their master is not our master. And so we have to be really careful that a desperate world, a desperate world is going to lie to you about being Christian or of Christian values. In this season, brothers and sisters, you have to have your guard up, your discernment up. I use this as an example. I read the, the book, this has come up a couple of times, uh, that uh, the biography Eric Metaxi's on Bonhoeffer, and Bonhoeffer recorded what was one of Hitler's biggest promises to Germany. Do you know one of his promise to Germany was to make Germany a Christian nation? Did you know that? You know why he said that? Because he wanted the support of Christians. He wanted the church to vote for him. So his promise was to make Germany a Christian culture. Brothers and sisters, Herod here is saying. I'm a Christian too. Just give me all the information. Brothers and sisters, don't lower your guard in this season. Don't lower your guard in this season because there are so many lies and manipulation, whether it be through the legends of Christmas and the different practices that we get into. See, being a Christian doesn't just make you a good person. It makes you a person who can admit they are not good. So many people today, I think, believe that being a Christian, when they say I'm a Christian, they're thinking I'm a good person. That's not the definition of a Christian. A more accurate definition of a Christian is somebody who can come and say, I'm not a good person. I was due the wrath of God and I needed a Savior. That's why my Messiah had to come as an infant in history. See, so many people are so confused because so many Christians are confused. Being a Christian is not just being a good person. It's not just coming to church. It's not just saying the right things. It's making Jesus your King and opening up your life to his reign. Herod is, using, uh, is used to manipulating and lying to overcome the competition. And you see, he was a very good politician. He was a very good politician. He was known in Rome. He was known in the area. Many would have praised him. This made me think a lot uh, about some of the, the shopping and some of the consumerism that we go today. Did you know there are many ads that are like made or tailored specifically for Christians? Because we, are, we spend a lot of money in this season, don't we? We buy a lot of things. Believe me when I say that the world wants to manipulate that. 
and wants to get you to feel like you need things rather than just needing Christ, your Savior. How many of you feel like it can't be Christmas without all of the decorations? Excuse me. Without the tree. And I'm not saying I'm not going to wear on Christmas, by the way. I have a Christmas tree in my living room, right? And, and we enjoy those things, but it cannot be about those things. And we can't let the world define how we celebrate. As we look, then as we continue in the story, look at verse 12. And I think here, Herod thought that he was in control, didn't he? But God often thwarts those that think that they are in control, and that includes us. Anybody ever been there in your relationship with God where you thought you were in the driver's seat and then God did something in your life to make sure you knew you weren't in the driver's seat? See, history proves that all the many variables of our control have a really short self shelf life. And see, that was the same for, uh, for Herod. It was as simple as a dream. All God had to do was give a dream to these wise men, warning them not to come and to talk to Herod. And I just think, how many times has it been one little detail that God removed or changed or did to make sure that we remember that He is the one in control? Something as small as a dream. Externally, we don't have to defend ourselves then. This is what this means. We don't have to try to control our situations. How many of you are exhausted trying to just maintain this like lifestyle that you have or trying to maintain that job. You ever tried to hang on to a job longer than you know you should have? Or have you ever, ever tried to maintain control? Um, for me, it looks like trying to keep our house clean. That's fighting a losing battle for me. And I'm like, I got it clean. And then I blink. I'm like, what happened? <laughs> children, right? Sometimes God uses children as that reminder that we're not in control. Amen, parents? We're not in control. See, Herod was not in control, and it took something as small as a dream. The truth will always come to the surface. So here's the thing for us. We don't have to try to defend ourselves in the eyes of the world about why we do the things we do. We should explain why we do those things, but we don't have to defend ourselves um, about why we live for Christ and Christ alone. I think about this um, a few years ago when I was a college pastor at, at the beginning of the semester. Uh, we had a bunch of Bibles, and we had bought them, and we wanted to give them to all the freshmen at the college. It was really cool. And we gathered this money, and we raised, and we were able to put uh, in the City of Commerce bags, we would put all these awesome New Testament Bibles, and we were able to hand them out. And the day came, and somebody complained about Bibles in the freshman bags. And so how did the administration respond? They removed all of the Bibles, hundreds of Bibles from the bags. And not only that, but there was a, a, one of the ladies at the college marched into our faculty advisor's office and said, I want them off campus. I don't want them ever to come on campus again. Because they got a little pushback about a Bible being in the freshman bag. Why is it that a Bible is so threatening to our culture? Because it's God's power for salvation. The, the enemy does not want, his, want God's word in the hands of the people, does he? But, man, we didn't have to defend ourselves. We just began to pray. We didn't say anything. We just began to pray. And we were welcomed back on campus. And we never got the Bibles back, which was kind of a, a bummer. But um, as I went in, I asked, they, they just said, we don't know what Bibles you're talking about. Um, but we did pray. And whoever was pushing back against us got pushed against, I think. And we don't know who, we don't know how. That's because God was the one fighting our battles. We didn't feel the need to march in there and stick my finger in the administration's chest. 
and make a big huff. We just began to pray. Because God is the one who fights our battles. He's the one who is in control. So, brothers and sisters, when you face external opposition, whether it be at work from coworkers, whether it be because of a practice that you're doing that, that brings you back into worship of Christ, let me tell you, you don't have to defend that. Let God fight that battle for you. Exhausting to try to control every detail, every variable, every, every variable that works contrary to our will. And then internally, did you know that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit? <laughs> and a lot of us don't like that truth, do we? Especially during Christmas time. <laughs> it's like, well, let's just put a pause on that one fruit of the Spirit. Um, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. See, internally, we like to let ourselves go in this season and uh, stop practicing discipline. But man, we need to be disciplined in Christ. We don't just let ourselves indulge in anything that the season provides. And let me encourage you, this is a part of our discernment. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful what we engage in so that we not let it reign over us. Um, and then desperate times call for desperate actions. And when Herod hears nothing, when he realizes, when then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all he, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to that time that he had ascertained from the wise men. What we need to understand both about external opposition and internal opposition to the gospel and Jesus' work in our life is this, that when it's defeated, it gets harder sometimes. The opposition doubles down and sometimes does horrendous things as we see Herod do here. When defeat is inevitable, a lot of times we turn to evil. Even as believers, sometimes we do things contrary to God's way when we're defeated, don't we? You ever been in that moment of desperation and you begin to justify in your head, this is okay when you know it's not? Well, it's just me, Lord, because of this situation. God's like, no, I'm still Lord in this situation. Don't turn to desperate moves. But Herod turns to one of the greatest evils. You know, Nazareth was, a, a, or sorry, Bethlehem. Um, I, I think I heard a, a study one time say that this was probably in the neighborhood of 20 to 40 kids, 20 to 40 lives, because he became desperate. He was so insecure about his kingship and his control. Brothers and sisters, my challenge for you this season is to let go of this control that you think you have over the season and over your lives. And when you hear of Jesus coming, would you celebrate? Would you rejoice by letting go of your life and not having to cling to things like traditions? Some traditions are good, but it's what matters most is the heart about that tradition. Who's Lord over that tradition? That time, um, oh, and uh, I wanted to leave you with this story. Traditions can be something that we have a tough time letting go of, isn't it? Sometimes we love just practicing things that we know. And that was the same for my family. And I'll never forget the Christmas uh, where Becky and I came in and we were starting to get really excited about our faith. And I asked my grandmother, uh, so quick history, the Rostys would have this huge gathering of Christmas. All of our extended family was awesome. Anybody do that? It was cool. And that was the tradition. That was the tradition. But then Becky and I became excited about the Bible, excited about Jesus. And we came in and asked my grandmother, can I read the Christmas story from the Bible? at our big traditional Christmas. And uh, my grandmother said, yeah, that's okay. 
And so we did. I came and I read, I, I had us all sit down and I read the Bible. I read the Christmas story straight from Scripture. And then my wife, as we met with all of our sin family's kids, we realized nobody had ever explained the manger scenes that were sitting all around the house. And so what we did is we just gathered the kids up, gathered our kids up and just said, hey, do you guys know what this whole scene is about? These little figurines with this baby in the middle. And they all looked at me like, no. And so Becky begins to explain the manger scene to him. That was the last big Rosti family Christmas that we were ever able to have because we made it about Jesus and not just about a holiday. See, you're going to have opposition in all kinds of forms. Sometimes it's closer, sometimes it's further away and external. But brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. It's worth that cost to guide our hearts into remembering that this Christmas is about who? It's about Jesus. This is a simple message. <laughs> like Shane, I, I knew you were going to say it's about Jesus. Uh, you might get tired of that message eventually. I'm not going to stop preaching that message. It has to be about Jesus. Not just Christmas, but every day of the year for a believer. It has to be about Jesus. So what? This season, did you kill your, fat, your flesh and feed your spirit? Kill your flesh and feed your spirit. What does this look like for you? Maybe a little less focus on the things and on the food and a little more focus on worship. Maybe that's what it looks like for you. What does, it choose to, what does it look like to choose to take joy in the coming of Jesus and not let the hecticness of the busy season get a hold of you? What does that look like for you? Jesus, we praise you and we thank you, God. We thank you, God, that you saw us, that you spilled your blood for us, Lord, that you, you gave your body, your life for us, Lord, and you conquered death. And so, God, now in this season, as we remember both your sacrifice on the cross, but, Lord, also the miracle of you coming into this world, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be soft. God, would you soften our hearts to the truths and the realities of your incarnation and why it's worth celebrating this season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.